a couple of years ago, while I was still a small infana, my dad was taking me to an evening church service. And we had to pick up one of my friends on the way. So we were in a bit of a rush. And uh, I was standing outside waiting for my dad to come and get in the car. And while I was waiting for him, I was playing with the dog, as teenagers do. And the dog uh, put his muddy paw on my shirt. And then I said, no, man, look down. And uh, he left a muddy mark on my shirt. And in the mind of a teenage boy, I looked down and I thought to myself, this is fine. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how many of you who have teenagers can relate to that. But teenagers... Uh, tolerance for this is fun is a lot higher than what most people's are. Anyway, we got in the car and off we went to my friend's house. And on the way, my dad uh, looked over at the shirt and he said, uh, what happened then? So I told him the story and he said to me, why didn't you change the shirt? So I said to him, no, this is fine. This is not a big deal. Uh, nobody will even notice. And then he said to me words that have uh, stuck with me forever. He said, John, you actually don't know who is watching you. And I'd just been asked to help out lead the youth at the time. And he was 100% right. I was totally unaware of people that were looking to me, people that were watching me, and people that were looking to me and looking at me. I was completely unaware. You see, when the chips are down, people look for someone to influence them. They look for somebody to give them guidance, to give them faith, to give them courage, to give them direction. And we call that leadership. When the chips are down, in other words, people look for leaders. Yeah, the problem for so many people is at the moment is that we look to leaders that we don't know. We look to leaders who are lightweight with a big platform. And uh, we, know that, we know that lightweight with a big platform is, is always going to end up in a problem. Lightweight with a big platform is a recipe for disaster. We know this. And that's why I love what Rich had to share last week about waiting, about correctly waiting yourself and correctly waiting others. Uh, appropriate waiting. If you missed the message, jump onto our podcast channel, uh, Anthem Church, uh, onto our website, anthem.org.za. You'll find all of our past sermons there. And I want to encourage you just to go and listen to it. I thought it was a really helpful, outstanding message uh, about waiting ourselves appropriately. See, friends, we need to follow people that we know. Follow people that we know. How do they conduct their marriage? Uh, what do their children look like? What are they around the dinner table? How are they around the dinner table? Uh, when uh, do they just preach a good message or do they live a good message do they live what they preach see lightweight with a big platform is a recipe for disaster but there's two sides to this so it's firstly who are you looking to and secondly who is looking to you and uh, rich addressed the first part last week and i want to address the second part this week who is looking to you see friends when the trip when the chips are down who is looking to you for faith for courage for direction for guidance and so many people, I believe, don't lead well because they're not actually, we're not actually aware that they are leaders. Who is looking to you? The people who are looking to you when the chips are down are looking to you for influence. They're looking to you to lead them. Are you merely passing on to them something that you've received from an unknown source? Or are you leading them to life that you have found in Jesus? Friends, we have to start realizing that we have the ability to influence others. And that starts with us asking, who is looking to you? Who is looking to us? We recently had some painting to do at our house and I was going to be there late in the evening by myself to get it done. And so being quite systematic, I planned ahead and I thought I'm going to go into the dining room and I'm going to turn, while the sun's still up, I'm going to turn on the light in the dining room so that when I'm finished painting, it'll be dark. I don't have to walk through a dark house carrying an open tin of paint, right? I've been down that road. I know what happens. And so I planned ahead. And so while the sun was still up, I turned the dining room lights on and then I thought, oh, the light's not working. Turn the light on, turn it on. 
and I looked at the light and I realized it was working. Uh, it was just making zero difference uh, in the room while the sun was up. And I thought to myself, actually, if anything, it feels like every time I turn this light on, somehow it's making the room slightly darker. Uh, that seemed to be the effect that the light, it's, it's an old light fitting. I thought to myself, okay, so that light fitting needs to change. Uh, I've got to change it, it's got to sort it out, no problem. I'll get to that. Left the light on, went and carried on my painting. When I finished my painting, I came through back through the house. Obviously, it's now dark outside. And I was amazed at how bright the room was. You see, the light hadn't got any lighter. It was still the same brightness. All that had happened was the contrast between the dark outside and the light inside had increased. It had got darker, and therefore the light that was shining seemed a lot brighter in my estimation. I think one of the main reasons that people don't think of themselves as leaders is because they think to themselves, all I have is this little light. It feels like when I turn the light on, it makes no difference. It feels like, if anything, I make the room a little bit darker when I speak up, when I say something, um, and when I, when I try and do something with the little light I have. Friends, what we don't realize is the darker it gets outside, as the, as the contrast between darkness and light becomes bigger, so the brightness of our light shines brighter and it draws others in far more attractively. It's not only who are you looking to, it's who's looking to you. We are busy building up to Legacy September, and so I've been giving some thought to my legacy. Obviously, this is a legacy that we as a community are leaving, but there's also personal questions that we have to process around legacy. And a big part of your legacy is the people that look to you. That's a big part of your legacy. Uh, just because you aren't aware of them doesn't mean that they're not there. Don't make sure that you are not walking around with a dirty shirt. Make sure that you are aware of the people who are looking to you. The darker it gets outside, the brighter your light is shining to them and your influence will grow. And so if we're asking ourselves who is looking to us, the next logical question is what are the people that are looking to us getting from us? It's no good being aware of people looking to us if when they look at us, they never receive anything of substance. They never receive anything of heaven. They just receive a poor mirror, mirror reflection of earth. Uh, they have to receive something of substance, something of heaven. So I want to go through a few things that the people who are looking to us should be receiving when they get to us. Here's why this is important. What we put into people is what we will get out of them. What we put into people is what we'll get out of them. And so if we want to start thinking and talking about legacy, we need to start thinking about the people that we're leaving a legacy for. See, it's all good and well uh, us focusing on our legacy, but that legacy has to be passed on to somebody. And uh, we trust that the people that we pass that legacy on to it will steward it and grow it and build it for the generation that comes after them. I can't only focus on what I'm leaving as a legacy. I also have to focus on the people that I'm leaving a legacy for. Because I need them to build and steward their legacy, right? What I put into people is what I'm going to get out of them. That's why, that's why it is so important when people look to us, when the chips are down, it's so important what they get from us. Because what we put into people is what we're going to get out of them. So a couple of things that I believe uh, that people need to be getting out of us uh, to continue our legacy. Number one, <clears throat> correctly placed anger. I'm not sure how many of us have a good theology and a good understanding of anger. I think uh, anger is something that most people just believe is wrong. Perhaps it's a sin. And so therefore we try and avoid it. But at the back of our mind, we know that at some stage we're going to get angry. And so therefore we just resign ourselves to the fact that we will sin. If we believe anger is a sin and we know that we will at some stage get angry, we just resign ourselves. We will get angry at some stage and therefore we're going to sin at some stage. And so we see everything that's gone on around us over the last two weeks. 
And then we look at everything that's taken place over the last 18 months. And then we look at, at everything that's taken place and could have, should have, would have taken place over the last 27 years. And then we look at everything that's taken place over the last 100 years in our nation. And the overwhelming emotion that we are left with is anger. We're left with anger. Friends, if we don't place that anger correctly, it will end up landing on people. We will jump on the anger bandwagon and place our anger on the government or on a particular race or class or on a failure. And there's so much to be angry about that it honestly gets exhausting. Because if I'm angry at a particular thing and I go and talk to somebody else, uh, they are angry about something else. And they tell me that I should also be angry about that thing. And if I'm not, they're angry at me for doing that too. They're angry at me for not being angry about that. So it's, it's like, uh, oh, you're angry about rhino poaching. Why are you not angry about KFC and how they treat their chickens? Oh, she's sorry, I didn't realize that I was supposed to be angry about that also. Oh, you're angry about government uh, corruption and greed. Why aren't you angry about uh, corporate CEOs who, who are paid more than the 2,000 employees uh, combined that they employ? Why aren't you angry about it? And she's like, she's, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't have capacity to be angry at all of that. And it's like, uh, oh, you're angry that somebody put banana on their pizza. Good. That's right. You should be angry at that. That's a justified. That's an example of justified, right, righteous anger. Banana and pizza. I've said it before uh, here, and it's right. Anger is a poor motivator. If left unchecked and poorly placed, anger will never accomplish anything. If left unchecked and poorly placed, anger will never accomplish anything. Did, did you know that the vast majority of uh, riots and protests uh, accomplish absolutely nothing? The Carnegie Institute has something called the Global Protest Tracker, where they track and monitor riots and protests, obviously large riots and protests, on a global scale over a roving five-year period. So over the last five years, there's some, I think the number is like 283 or 286 riots and protests around the world. And they go into quite a bit of detail. You can go and look it up for yourself. They go into quite a bit of detail around the causes of the riots, uh, the outcomes of the riots, the cost of the riots, it, it's, it's, it's quite a detailed breakdown out of the Carnegie Institute. And uh, for a good percentage, I didn't measure the percentage, but for a very good percentage, the cause of the riots are unknown. And then for more than 90%, the outcomes of every protest and riot for more than 90% is no change or menial change. No change or menial change. Why? Anger is a poor motivator. And if left unchecked and poorly placed, Anger will not accomplish anything. When people look to us, they should be getting correctly placed anger. We should, teach, we should be teaching people how to be angry in a meaningful way. Where should we be placing our anger? We should always place our anger at injustice. Our anger should always be placed at injustice. Injustice angers God and it should anger us also. We dealt a little bit with justice during Mercy May. And if you didn't, uh, if you were not part of uh, part of our, our family at that time, uh, again, jump onto our podcast channel, uh, Anthem Church. Find us anthem.org.za. Listen to a sermon uh, through Mercy made, looking at uh, as we dealt with something of justice a little bit. Um, but I want to say this again: justice is not charity, and charity is not just. Justice is not charity, and charity is not just. Here's the difference. Charity leaves people happy to live in the shade of a tree, thinking that we've done our job. We've protected them from the sun. We're happy to live for them to live in the shade of a tree. Justice says, don't only live in the shade of the tree, 
Why don't you come and climb the tree with us so that you can see Jesus? And then don't only climb the tree to see Jesus. Why don't you eat some of the fruit so that you can get seeds to sow that you can plant trees of your own so that can, and we can grow more trees for others to see Jesus and to live in the shade and to eat fruit. And, and that cycle continues. That's the difference. Remember the Hebrew word that we learned in May, the word, this word meshpat. Meshpat means equitable treatments. It means the equitable, the same rule of law. And it's most often used in reference to vulnerable people. In this country, we don't talk much about vulnerable people. We speak more about poor people. And so we try to solve the issue of poor people with charity. What the gospel does is it calls us to solve the issue of vulnerable people with meshpat. You see, friends, poverty alleviation isn't the main aim of justice. I'm going to say that again. Poverty alleviation Getting rid of poor people or solving poor people's problems is not the main issue of justice. What does Jesus say about poverty? He says, Matthew 26, 1, he says, you're always going to have the poor with you. The poor you will always have with you. And he says, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I think that we've become so preoccupied with trying to solve the poverty conundrum that we've neglected the weightier issues of justice. Jesus himself says this, Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, it's food. And you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guards, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So should we be working to, ha- to see poor people have food, clothes, Clothing and shelter, 100%. We should be. Absolutely. Jesus says that. He says, you should have done both. Don't do one and neglect the other. He says, you must do both. He says, give to the poor. Make sure that you don't neglect the more important matters, the weightier issues of justice, mercy, faithfulness. So Domino feeding 3,500 tons of food is a matter of the gospel. But if it stops at feeding, then it's charity and we neglect justice. Justice has to include equity. It has to include rule of law. See, charity deals with the immediate problem only. Justice looks at both the immediate as well as the root causes so that we can solve the long-term problem. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says that there's three root causes of poverty. Oppression, calamity, and personal moral failure. Charity says, I'm sorry that that happened. How can I make your suffering a little bit less so that I feel so that it bothers me less? That's what charity says. Justice looks to deal with oppression through meshpat. It looks to deal with calamity through giving, and it looks to deal with moral failure by having the moral standard of the Bible. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from jail to a group of white pastors during the civil rights protests of the 1960s, and uh, he said this, he urges them, please, please, don't settle for a negative peace, which is the absence of of tension, rather fight, do the hard work of working for a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. For many people, this is an uncomfortable concept. See, what happened when the unrest broke out two weeks ago? People in communities responded and rallied and began to protect themselves, and rightly so. See, friends, protecting your family and your business from crime is justified, it is right, and it is good. But we cannot settle, what we cannot settle for is a negative peace. Now that the tension has subsided a little bit, we cannot think this is done. We've got peace. Tension has subsided. No, friends. We have to keep fighting and keep working for the presence of justice, which is a positive peace. If we don't, it will only erupt again. 
I get that there were many reasons for the unrest. It was largely poor people being used as a tool by politicians and other criminals to carry out their agendas, and I get that. But isn't that the very definition of injustice? Isn't that the very opposite of justice? Vulnerable people being used inequitably by other people. Friends, we cannot become complacent just because the tension has died down. We have to actively seek justice, meshpat, equitable treatment, equitable rule of law for all vulnerable people. Otherwise, we get stuck in a cycle of guilt giving. I feel bad that you exploited and have nothing. And so I give you something this time. And Jesus says, don't, don't just give food. You neglect the weightier issues. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. See, friends, it's, it's easy. It's far easier for us to get somebody to give something to a charity than it is to address justice holistically and biblically. But that's what we call to do because it's the weightier, more important issue, Jesus says. So when people look to us, they need to find a place to correctly place their anger. We shouldn't be jumping on the anger bandwagon and saying, yes, it's this person, and yes, it's that person, and yes, it's the government. All of those things might be true, but friends, that anger will exhaust you and achieve nothing. When our anger is placed correctly, then it can achieve a purpose. We have to place our anger at ongoing injustice, however and wherever it occurs. Number two, people should be receiving, firstly, correctly placed anger, and secondly, faith. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13 says, These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And friends, when people look to us, what they need to see is faith. Over the, over the time of unrest, I saw a number of people change their profile pictures to uh, faith over fear. And I thought, that's, that's wonderful. That's awesome. But the problem is that when many of these people were looked, looked to by others, what they unfortunately received wasn't always faith. So <laughs> your profile picture and how you live is two different things. Here's what Paul says about faith, Abraham's faith, Romans chapter 4, verse 19. He says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was, about as, was as good as dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. See, unfortunately for many people to have faith means to close your eyes and hold your thumbs means to deny what we see around us. It's bad in South Africa. No, it's not bad in South Africa. It's just a flesh wound. God has a plan for this country and all we need to do is trust in Him. Uh, no, Abraham faced the fact. He faced it. It was a fact. His body was as good as dead. He didn't deny that he was too old and yet he still believed. You can face the fact that things are not very good and yet still have faith. Faith doesn't deny reality it just believes in a better reality to come. Faith doesn't deny reality. It just believes in a better reality to come. When people look to you, when people look to us, they need to have faith put into them, not by people that pretend uh, to be blind to the issues, that can't see the issues that are going on around them, but by people who have a high reliance on God's word, who point others towards God's word and his people. The most powerful stories that you can tell and share are stories of how Jesus transforms and even more so how he transforms you, not neighborhood watch gossip. I was amazed to see some of those same faith over fear people constantly spreading rumors and false stories. Obviously, they weren't doing it maliciously or on purpose to, to hurt people, 
But let me ask you this. If that was you, uh, when, and you had a faith over fear and you were doing that, uh, when people looked to you, were they getting faith or were they getting fear? You see, your profile picture can say faith, but your life can say fear. Number three, they need to receive hope. Do you know what the opposite of hope is? Stagnation. The opposite of hope is stagnation. To stagnate means you don't move at all. You get stuck in a place and the longer you do that for, the less that you believe movement is possible. And so you start to lose hope. You start to become hopeless. Being stuck in addiction for 20 years, you start to believe that change is not possible. You become stagnated. And you start, hopelessness starts setting in. Stuck in a cycle of poverty, the same cycle of poverty that your parents were stuck in in the previous generation and their parents before them. And that same cycle, the same cycle. Don't ever believe the lie that there's no way out. Don't ever believe the lie. As soon as you stop progressing, you start to stagnate. And the longer you stagnate for, the less hope you have. Why do young people have so much hope? It's because they haven't been around the same mountain of disappointment 25 times. I want to take a minute to address some of the trauma that's associated with the social unrest that we went through. Friends, traumatic events, how we ex- our experiences of those traumatic events and then the effects of those traumatic events can cripple us. They can cripple us over a short term and they can have long-lasting effects mentally, emotionally, sometimes even physically. And we get stuck in the cycle that just repeats itself. When people look to us, they have to see hope. And that hope is created by movement and it's created by progress. The progress of us becoming more Christ-like every day in spite of our circumstances. Of us being transformed into Christ's likeness despite what's going on. Despite how we feel. Friends, don't get stuck in a rut. The only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. The only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. The longer you stay in a rut for, the closer to a grave it becomes. Move, change, progress and always move in the direction towards Christ, towards His church. If today you're stuck in a trauma, uh, either an experience of a trauma, an event, a traumatic event, your experience of a traumatic event, or the effects of a traumatic event, if you're stuck in that and you can't progress from it, please won't you get hold of us. We want to help you to take one step. You can begin to kindle hope. You can begin to believe that movement is possible, hope is possible, and that you can begin to keep hope alive, to quote a famous author. Number four and lastly, love. In Luke 11 14 it says this Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute when the demon left the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed some of them said by Beelzebub the prince of demons he is driving out demons others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall if Satan is divided against himself How can his kingdom stand? The scripture has as its core principle the same thing that Rich shared out of 1 Peter 3 last week. He said, don't repay evil with evil and insult with insult. He says, rather rather repay evil with good and insult with blessing. Jesus here says, "You, you can't drive out the devil with the devil, right? You've got to drive out the devil with something else. That's why it's important for us to have a very good theology of violence. You see, we can't cast out lawlessness and violence with more lawlessness and violence. You can't cast it out. You can't cast out the devil with the devil. You can't cast out lawlessness with lawlessness. I believe that there's a time and a place where violence is justified and right. But it's not the solution to everything. Friends, when people look to you during times of unrest and violence, do they receive 
more unrest and violence in response or do they receive love in response? A man called Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a preacher in the, in, the 19, in the 1800s, says this, For us to hate those who are in, in, in error, to talk of them with contempt, to wish them ill or to do them wrong, is not according to the Spirit of Christ. You cannot correct error by violence, nor overcome hate with hate. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. Friends, when the chips are down, when people look to you, do they get love or do they get a copy of the world around you, a mirror image? As Christians, we have to have something different to offer. You cannot drive out the devil with the devil. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. The scripture that we started off with out of 1 Corinthians 13 speaks about the characteristics of love. And it's often used at weddings, but it's not actually addressing marital love. It's addressing love in general. It's a love that all Christians should have. And it's a love that when people look at us uh, as, as Christians, a love that they should receive and see in us. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It's not proud. Does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. For sure, this is what our marriages should look like. But Paul isn't writing a wedding speech here. He's writing a letter to a church and saying, this is what your love should look like. This is how love should govern your conduct. And it should also govern ours. This is the type of love that should govern our conduct when people look to us. When the chips are down, friends, people look to somebody. As Richard said last week, uh, make sure that the people you look to are in the right weight class. Remember, a light weight with a big platform is a recipe for disaster. And then realize that there are people who are looking to you. And then you have to ask yourself the question, what are the people who are looking to me getting? They should get anger correctly placed, anger at injustice, because anger poorly placed is a bad motivator and it will never accomplish anything. It will leave you disillusioned and exhausted. They should get faith, not in your words, but in your deeds. Faith that doesn't deny the facts, faith that acknowledges them and still believes in spite of them. They should get hope, a hope that allows you to take one step forward as they see I hope it allows them to take one step forward as, he, as they see the transformation that Christ has done in you. And they should get love. You cannot drive out the devil with the devil. The conquering weapon of the Christian is love. Friends, I want to take a moment to pray for us today. If you've never placed all of your trust in Jesus as the only way, as the only one who makes not bad people good, but dead people alive, uh, if you've never asked him to forgive you for your sin and for your way of life and to make a way for you to have a relationship with God where he can show you and teach you how to live, um, I want to pray for you this morning. If that's you, uh, if you've never responded to Jesus, there's going to be a button that comes up on the screen and says, I give my life to Jesus. Why don't you click that button? We've got some guys standing by who'd love to pray with you. Um, but I would like to pray with you now. And uh, if that's you, why don't you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, thank you that you know me. And even though you know me, you still choose to love me. Today I confess that I need your forgiveness. Would you make me a new person? Would you teach me how to live? And would you show me the love of the Father? In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thanks, friends. If, if you pray that prayer, please don't uh, rush off. Don't disappear. Won't you uh, click a button and request prayer so that we can connect with you? We'd love to help you take a next step towards community.